everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey the sad virtual DEF CON human, not greater. Yeah. As Corey's hinting out on today's episode, we'll have a brief chat about what we're looking forward to for the DEF CON conference that will, I suppose, be over by the time you listen to this, but still available for viewing. Uh, we're also going to go over a recent report from Curator about DDoS and BGP incidents for the last quarter, and then dive into some research from Yan, better known as Bcrypt on Twitter, into a cross-site request forgery vulnerability and OKCrypt messaging API. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and hack our way in. So let's start today with a report from Curator. I believe that's how you pronounce it, Curator. Uh, they're a DDoS mitigation provider that recently released a quarterly DDoS and BGP incident report. And while the DDoS information is pretty interesting, uh, some of the BGP stats are what really caught me off guard. Um, so we've talked about BGP several times on this podcast. We've had predictions about BGP and what was it? Like hackers hijacked the internet or something like that through weaknesses in BGP from a couple of years ago? I, I think we just had it. Hackers uh, could hijack the internet, but I think we t- focused on BGP and DNS as the main avenues what, through. Yeah. So I guess let's like start with a quick BGP refresher before we get into this report. Uh, so it's the dynamic routing protocol. It's been around since 1989. Uh, the current By the way, source. don't forget the the acronym is Border Gateway Protocol. <laughs> exactly, not, Border Gateway you, Protocol. Not, I'm not sure if you said that. But uh, been around. We're so s- used to the darn acronyms. <laughs> Honestly, this whole podcast is going to be full of so many acronyms that good luck, everybody. Um, <laughs> so it's really now it serves as basically the backbone of the internet. So all of the the main internet router infrastructure uses BGP to advertise basically what networks they have access to. And then BGP helps um, propagate these advertised networks across the entirety of the world so that at any given point, your internet service provider knows if you want to get to Google's IP address, uh, it knows which routes it has to hop through basically, what actual routers and logical locations it has to send that traffic to. Uh, It doesn't have any security built into it, uh, but there are several extensions like resource public key infrastructure, uh, which is RPKI, uh, Route Origin Authorization, or ROA, and BGPSEC have all been created to try and kind of help this because in reality, it's all basically on the honor system. Like all uh, you can, anyone with enough money can go and get a autonomous system number or an ASN assigned to them and participate in BGP. Uh, assuming you have a, a static block of IP addresses assigned to you. And basically you set up your router to say, I am ASN12345, I own 2.2.2.0 slash 24, you can access it through here. And then your peer that you're connected through, through BGP will advertise that out to their peers and to their peers. And then through the wonders of this routing protocol, every router will then know, okay, if I need to get to 2.2.2.whatever, I hop through here, 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 all the way down to that original advertisement. But what you're saying is if you're feeling feisty, one day you can decide to broadcast out I own 8.8.0.0 slash 16, and suddenly, is that Verizon or Google? I forget who owns 8.8.8.8. 
But anyway, suddenly all the traffic for this other company might come to you if the other routers around the world pick up that. Exactly. And now most BGP participants are expected to adhere by basically rules of engagement, kind of. Like you're supposed to enact route filtering to prevent unauthorized route leaks out to the internet. You're, you're expected to not just straight up advertise networks that you do not actually control. Exactly. Um, but unfortunately, through accidents and through actual um, maliciousness, that isn't always the case. So this Curator report tracked two main statistics that were pretty interesting. Uh, they call BGP route leaks and BGP hijacks, which are very similar but technically distinct incidents. So starting with BGP route leaks, it's the propagation of a routing announcement beyond its intended scope. So if that happens, it means that it can redirect traffic down a unintended path across the internet's backbone, which could enable analysis, so eavesdropping on that connection, or could result in an overload or a black hole. Uh, if you remember back in Q4 of 2018 for our internet security report, uh, we talked about the Google and Cloudflare BGP incident, uh, where the internet exchange point of Nigeria uh, which has a peering agreement with Google, uh, were thus allowed to advertise Google and Cloudflare's networks to their direct partners uh, with the expectations that those partners would enact filters so they didn't propagate further. Uh, one of their partners, though, a company called Main One, failed to filter that route and accidentally advertised it out to their own peers. Uh, one of their peers, China Telecom, then picked that up and advertised it out uh, which ultimately got picked up by a Russian uh, ISP or BGP peer, which then made it out to the rest of the world. So for a little short period of time, a bunch of traffic destined for Google was routed through Russia into China into Nigeria and then to Google. That's an advertise of a route leak. Um, they can technically be malicious if you, I guess, intentionally remove the filter, but in general, they're accidents. Like you forget to set up a filter to stop route propagation beyond where it's supposed to go. A BGP hijack, on the other time, is when a BGP autonomous system uh, advertises address space that belongs to another autonomous system without the route object. Uh, so basically claiming ownership of a network that they do not actually own. And this is typically malicious, or it could still be an accident, like you fat finger in a network, you, you're setting something up to test and it accidentally advertises out into the world. Um, but it can have similar effects. Basically, it causes traffic to get routed through your autonomous system then, where you could potentially analyze it or drop it. Um, these are the real scary ones where basically our prediction from a few years ago was that because it's mostly on the honor system, some bad actor, some uh, willing participant could hijack BGP pretty easily and trick a bunch of traffic to going through their infrastructure and then potentially modify it or at least inspect it which has privacy concerns and security concerns as well. So let's get to the report now. In Q2 of 2021, Curator detected 9.5 million total route leaks and 7.2 million BGP hijacks through their sensors across the world. Now, the majority of these were isolated, meaning they didn't propagate beyond a single peer because their peers had the correct filters in place to stop it, but they were still incidents that, had there been another mistake up the line, could have caused global issues. So let's pause for a second. 9.5 million and 7.2 million. That's a lot of accidents to be happening with this 
really internet critical protocol out there. Yeah, seems like a pretty big number. Yeah, it's nuts. It's insane. Now, of those incidents, only four of the route leaks and three of the hijacks actually had a global impact, meaning they were able to propagate far enough to actually disrupt internet traffic as a whole to certain locations. Um, Curator actually maintains a Twitter feed where when their sensors pick up one of these global impacting ones, they tweet out details. It's pretty interesting. Uh, one of those was actually from April of this year where uh, Vodafone accidentally announced 30,000 prefixes, which caused a 13 times spike in their normal inbound traffic to their network and caused disruption to some services belonging to Google, Microsoft, Akamai, Cloudflare, and Fastly. Um, By the way, I wonder if they, when they're counting up the 9 million plus leaks, if that 30,000 counts for 30,000. That I actually don't know. Because be. it could be one incident that just has a lot of routes yep. in it that, that starts racking up those numbers quickly. This was a global incident, though. That uh, Google and Cloudflare one from 2018 would have been considered a global one as well since it disrupted more than outside that specific peer. Um, but again, it shows a pretty substantial issue with a protocol that a lot of people don't know about because it just kind of in general works, but is still weak to these mistakes and potentially malicious action as well. And we mentioned there's actual policies or protocols in place to help protect it, like RPKI. Um, but if you look at it, like these still have very small adoption rates. Like NIST maintains a RPKI adoption monitor and I just checked it this morning, and only 31% of BGP prefixes have a valid RPKI record. There's like around 1% that have an invalid one, and then 68 and change percent have no record at all. So still two thirds aren't even doing just basic security prote protections to prevent BGP hijacking in this case. Like, it's, this thing's what, 31 years old, 32 years old, and we're still trying to fix flaws in it? What the heck's the holdup? <laughs> I think people have been asking that for a while. We've we've kind of been surprised that uh, BGP hasn't crapped the bed for the internet a long time ago. I guess the filtering at uh, you know different areas is working, but still, let's secure it. I mean, what can we do about it? Like, can we replace it with something else? Like we've seen what IPv6 was supposed to replace IPv4 20 years ago, and we're still nowhere near there. Like, yes, there's a lot of IPv6 enabled services, but I'd say the overwhelming majority of BGPSec is, is supposed to help. Not a lot of people are using it. DNSSec is supposed to help. I guess DNSSec is somewhat out there, but do you even consider DNSSec? that well adopted yet yeah no i mean we we have the uh we have the standards to improve it it's just a matter of adoption and our industry is weird uh, to to be fair it costs money to adopt you have to upgrade systems you gotta yeah it but does still. and also it is again a critical protocol for the internet so a lot of places are probably wary to change anything that is currently working it's one of those things where if you look at funny look at it funny it might break and take down a chunk of the internet so I get the hesitation, but at the same time, like we're on like a knife edge, I feel at this point of some nation state actor deciding screw it and injecting a bunch of BGP routes in the internet and potentially being able to access resources they shouldn't be able to by stealing secrets. I, I'm just going to put on Pop Pop Corey's cynical hat. You know, we all know we should do it, but uh, human nature is we don't adopt anything until we get bit. 
<laughs> I mean, if you look at all the problems in society, whether it be getting a vaccine, thinking about long-term effects of climate change, <laughs> I, I, until a major disaster happens, we tend to not do the right thing as, as a group. <laughs> that is a pretty cynical view, and unfortunately, it also seems like a pretty accurate view. So who knows, like we predicted two years ago that it was going to become a major issue. I feel like it is at least gaining a little more like light shined on it recently, but there hasn't been a massive... By the way, we certainly, I, I like, like you, I'm, I don't think we realize the amount of leaks and hijacks that are kind of happening behind the scenes, even when we made that prediction. So perhaps our prediction is quietly happening as it is. It's just, again, they're, they're using band-aids and duct tape and filtering upstream to help solve it but it's quietly happening so yeah very interesting stats from q ray tor just in case anyone thinks of the company q radar it's q ray tor that is a i think a fair description the internet's basically held together with you know packing tape and bubble gum but anyways uh moving on uh, so last week, actually, I came across a blog post from one of my favorite security experts. Um, her name's Yang. She goes by Bcrypt on Twitter. I uh, used to work for the EFF, now as a security engineer for Brave, uh, the web browser. Um, so in her post, she described a cross-site request forgery flaw in OKCupid's messages API, uh, which she stated she could use to basically make herself more popular on AK OKCupid. I either forcing people to send messages or abusing the API to uh, force them to send profile likes. Uh, now, before we get into that vulnerability, we should probably take a step back and talk about cross-site request forgery again. Uh, I was episode 146, I think back in May of this year, where we discussed same origin policy and its role in protecting against CSRF attacks. Um, so I guess step one, let's just talk about cross-site request forgery. Uh, Corey, do you want to take that maybe? I'm sure you can explain it better, but I think as folks remember, uh, you know, essentially it abuses cookies. When, when, as we've talked about before, when you go to a website, often the website creates a, a cookie, and that cookie also can include authentication, session connection information, some token that allows you to keep browsing the website without logging on every second for a certain period of time. So like if you log on to watchguard.com, facebook.com, or whatever, you're going to get that authentication cookie. And then as you continue to look around, you're good to go. Uh, but without additional protections in place, if uh, another page somehow tricked your computer into thinking uh, it's making a request to that site you're authenticated to, that cookie is still included. And same origin origin policy is simply you know some some trick security controls that try to allow one domain not to be able to access the cookie or other information from another domain in yeah. your local browser client. Basically, your browser, when it makes a request to a site, will always, with no other protections enabled, will always include whatever authentication session material it has in a cookie to that site. Um, but. Like you'll notice if you, like let's say you log into bankofamerica.com, for example, so you've got an authenticated session there, uh, and then you go to watchguard.com, watchguard.com can't just send a post request to bankofamerica.com because of that same origin policy. So it's been quite a few years now since it's been added to browsers, but every single modern web browser out there adheres to 
same origin policy, which basically states, unless it is explicitly allowed, it will block these cross origin requests. And origin, if you remember back from that episode, is a combination of the like, protocol, so HTTP or HTTPS or FTP, and the full domain name. So that's watchguard.com is technically a different origin from login.watchguard.com. And it is definitely a different origin than bankofamerica.com. So if it attempted to send that request, that post request to Bank of America, maybe a post request with data that would send $1,000 to my bank account, if I had a Bank of America bank account, um, the browser will first send what's called a pre-flight request. It basically asks permission from the web server saying, hey, here's a, the request I want to send. Here's some info on it. It's going to be a post request. Uh, it's going to potentially have like these headers maybe. Is this going to be allowed? And the server will then send back a response with what is what it will allow. Uh, it uses speci specific headers for this, like access control allow origin, specifies which origins are allowed to make requests. So if watchguard.com wasn't explicitly listed in that header or a wildcard wasn't in that header, then it wouldn't allow it. There's also access control allow headers, which says which headers are allowed to be in that request. So it might allow that post request, but it might prevent like the, the X-API key header, for example, or the authorization header to prevent some of this authentication material from being sent to that site and the request. Uh, we mentioned that a lot of web developers still are unfortunately I'm pretty lax when they set this up because course does cause issues. Like by default, if you're trying to make a request like an API on a different origin, it won't be allowed because a lack of headers is blocked. Your, your example that login.watchguard.com wouldn't automatically be allowed to do everything to watchguard.com is legit. And yet obviously they're both owned by watchguard.com and there's probably some aspects of login.watchguard.com you want to have access. But the, as you say, the way the reason it's an issue is the web developer, whoever, when they're lazy, they just say, I'm just going to let watchguard or login.watchguard.com be an exception and do everything rather than going, as you said, and put the more detailed access control allower rules to say this, this, and this is allowed, but I'm still going to be more least privileged principle about it rather than just putting a nice big asterisk, let it do whatever it wants. So as you say, that, that, that lackness, especially when you're, you know, a lot of times you, you open it wide open when you're testing, building something and you're like, I'll get to it later. Uh, and then you never get to it later. You forget by the time you go out and push it to production. And I wonder how many security issues could have been fixed in this world just by remembering it later. Yeah, I, I feel like it, the SA password on a database, you know, you're writing a website that's access. Uh, just give it SA for now. I'll figure out the security once I get it working. <laughs> but then once it's working, it's kind of hard to go back and remember all the, the ways you should have locked it down in the first place. But regardless, even if you do have cores set up correctly, like let's say in this case, OKCupid does have a cores policy. They've got access control, our origin set to just OKCupid.com and maybe like a few other domains they use. There are actually still some exceptions to cores protections. Uh, basically, if your web browser sends what's called a simple request, it will be allowed without any cores pre-flight. Now, a simple request has to match a very specific criteria First off, has to come from Mark, you know, very simple. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, first off, it has to be one of three specific request types. It has to be a get request, a head request, or a post request. 
Yes. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, but I just wish we had the podcast on video, everyone, because Mark did a very kind of European three using the, you know, think of the OK sign rather than doing three like normal Americans with the three main fingers. He does the, the OK three. I thought this very was America. Cool. <laughs> Sorry, total absolute discretion. You were saying get head and post. Yes, get head and post. So that means like you can't send a, a delete request or a put request. It's only one of those three methods. Uh, it only allows four headers. So accept, accept language, content language, and content types. Now that does exclude like your browser automatically generated headers like user agent are still allowed. But for ones under the user's control, only those four. I'm so surprised that us, us American websites really accept language. Uh, yeah, that feels like it's something American sites would deny. English only. Sorry. <laughs> um, for the content type header, it only allows three specific content types. So application slash XWWW form URL encoded, multi-part slash form data, and text slash plain. So there's a distinct lack of like application JSON, for example, for sending, uh, which is typically used for API requests. Uh, basically- No complex stuff, just basic text. Yep. And essentially. then finally, uh, JavaScript is not allowed to set up event listeners to either monitor the request if it's like an upload or something or to read any response data. So basically this whole simple request is designed to allow plain, pure HTML web forms to work while blocking most JavaScript uh, requests. It's like, without being a, a web developer expert, basically you've got a lot of different ways to send data to a website or to retrieve data from a website. With JavaScript, you've got a bunch of different frameworks you can use. Uh, but with just a plain old boring HTML page, like no dynamic content whatsoever, just HTML, you can include just a form element. And then the action tells it, OK, I can submit a post request to this location. And so these exceptions, this simple request is designed to allow those still to work with the assumption that like if I were to host that on another page, like someone wouldn't be able to potentially trigger it and send that request. Um, so generally, these web forms have their own built-in protections for cross-site request forgery. They're called CSRF tokens. Uh, that's basically just a random value that's dynamically generated by the web server and then embedded in the page's HTML that gets automatically included then in any post requests sent back to that server. So basically, if you're running PHP or ASP or whatever you've got running on the web server, when it gets a request to load up that login page, for example, it'll generate this 30 character string, save it as a hidden value in that form so that when you hit submit on that form, it includes that hidden value back to the server and knows, okay, this came from someone who actually had access to the HTML. So uh, back to the vulnerability. Yan found that OKCupid's send message API uh, didn't include any CSRF token uh, in the JSON encoded request body. So basically you just had to send the correct parameters. So like the recipient, the message, uh, contents, that kind of stuff. And as long as the request included the authentication cookie, it would accept it. Um, she noted that submitting a web form in general doesn't trigger a course pre-flight since the form is sent in one of the accepted content types. It's usually XWWW form encoded, uh, URL encoded, or multi-part form data if it's more than just text. Like if you're uploading a 
bit of text and like an image. It'll use multi-part. Otherwise, it'll use that form URL encoded one. But you can also trigger the form uh, request with JavaScript. So you can set up a JavaScript function that says, okay, when the page loads, submit the form. So it's not the JavaScript itself that is sending the data. It's still the form that's doing it. It's just basically triggering a fake click on that submit button, which is okay. Um, the data can get sent as text-plain, uh, so it's not JSON, which meant she had to get a little crafty with how she basically escaped the parameters so that once the, the browser encoded all this and sent the request, it was actually a valid JSON string. She just got crafty with different she, quotes and stuff. She is only allowed text to, to she really wants to send code. There's certain reserved characters in code and, and some web security, the whole point, a lot of it kind of doesn't allow those reserved characters. So what you're saying is she had to use all kinds of tricks to, to get that character to end up in the request. Basically, right? yeah, when you send a, a request through a normal form, and it's sent as a uh, plain, a, a, what is it, a text slash plain content type or a form slash whatever form URL encoded content type. The actual request body is basically just a string. And it's a string of value name equals value contents. So like if I've got a form on there, it says like username and password. The actual request body will be username equals sign mark. A string. And password uh, equals whatever my password is. Both just a straight, oh, oh, straight up string. Or it could be username would be, oh, okay. Yep, so what she did. But, but it could be mark with other characters too, right? right. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, and then if it's got special characters, the default uh, form URL encoded content type will encode them like, you know, with the, what is it, the, whatever the heck the fancy name for the percent symbol is, followed by the ASCII encoding for the actual character. Um, so she actually set up had to set up the form to explicitly use text slash plain so it would maintain the original special characters, which is allowed. And then basically she crafted it where it was uh, like, like her user or the form, as she just did like foo equals quote, double quote, quote bar, and then the JavaScript or the JSON text so that once it all encodes it, it is a valid JSON object that gets sent to the, uh, to the server. Um, so long story short, she basically, she created this link on her page where she hosted a form that was sent via JavaScript and then she sent this out to her friends and any of her friends that visited that page while having a active authenticated session with OkCupid would send a arbitrary message to her OkCupid profile. Uh, she just had each message be like, I am a rabbit, which is kind of funny. I don't know. Um, so like one of the mitigations in this case could have been, for example, uh, setting a same site cookie, uh, same site cookie attribute. So with these authentication cookies, you can actually set different attributes. You can say it's only allowed to be sent over connections that use HTTPS. That one's pretty common. Or there's an attribute called same site that has a few different modes. Uh, if it's set to none specifically, then the browser will include it with any request, regardless of the origin to that destination. Uh, if it's set to lax, then the cookies are not sent when the request loads something like an image or frames the content into a third-party site, but it is sent when you navigate to, from the origin site. It's like, let's say I include a link to facebook.com from um, marksite.net. If the cookie policy for Facebook is set to lax and you click on that link, the browser will then include your cookie in that first navigation request to facebook.com. 
Uh, in comparison, though, if it's set to strict, they are just straight up never sent from a third-party origin. So even if you navigate from my site, it'll have to do multiple requests in order for it to validate your authentication, basically. Um, so if the, the same site cookie had been set to strict or lax, it would have blocked it. Uh, turns out, though, if it's just missing, uh, Google, for example, will default to lax, but with the exception that any request that occurs within two minutes of first receiving that cookie is still allowed. It's like if you log into OkCupid and then within two minutes go to her site, uh, it would still allow it, but um, that is at least just the Google default. Turns out that she didn't even have to get all crafty with this whole JavaScript and form and escaping all the, the JSON uh, encoding and everything. Uh, she could have just used the JavaScript fetch API function because uh, fetch, even with a post request, still follows that spec for no pre-flight because it just defaults to a text slash plain encoded message. So it could have been even easier in this case. Um, but all of this basically is just another way to bypass cross-site request forgery vulnerabilities if there aren't other protections in place. Like things like same site cookie attributes are, should be required these days by most websites. Um, things like CSRF tokens are a little more complex to set up, but still offer a strong protection against CSRF. All these are basically like, there's no single thing as a web developer you can set up that's going to protect all of your data from cross-site request forgery. There is a lot of hoops you have to jump through. But that said, like, it is still a, what do we say, an academically solved issue. Like, there are proper uh, proper tools and techniques you can do to protect against this style of attack. Isn't that true of just about every web application vulnerability? I mean, I guess it differs for, like, some of the true zero days. But, like, these basic ones, like CSRF or cross-site scripting or SQL injection, like, usually boils down to, okay, escape and validate the inputs or enact these different oh, programs. I, I still don't get what you mean for a zero day. Half the zero day I see are still a zero day CRF flaw. That's that right. was in some frame. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, what new flaw is there? True. <laughs> Anyways, there someone will find something new. But I thought this was fun research and it showed like yeah, something cool. that we missed during the last podcast of like these simple requests, as they're called, will get around cores protections. So you have to have other protections in place to prevent cross-site request forgery attacks. And now Yan is even more popular in OkCupid. Yeah, so many profile likes and so many uh, so many messages received to the inbox. We joke, but influencers get millions of dollars because of their following. This could be a fun way for bad actors to push misinformation by quickly creating accounts. If this flaw was on something like Twitter or something, you could uh, create a popular account, and when you have those eyes on you... Yep. I mean, another mitigation can do. could have been if their API just verified the content type header as well and saw that it wasn't application JSON, meaning it came from something else. Like, that's another pretty easy one as well. That is kind of a Band-Aid fix. Like, there are these other protocols that you can set up, like CSRF tokens or the correct cookie attributes to protect against it. It comes token. down to secure coding. Exactly. Um, so, now moving on to our last topic, by the time you listen to this, uh, DEF CON will have come and passed. Uh, but at the time of this recording, we are just one day away from the DEF CON security conference that takes place in Vegas every single year. Uh, for us, Technically, it's, it's probably even started, right? I mean, it's not the first official presentation day, but I think they do some fun, fun night activities on Thursdays. Yep. Uh, we as a team are attending virtually this year, just 
largely because the pandemic Very is still sad. raging. But hopefully next year we'll slowly get back to normal and be able to go in person in Vegas. I have a feeling that next year is going to be a DEFCON 30. Uh, like assuming this pandemic is under control, then it's going to be an absolute big one for that one. Yeah. Um, but even though it's hybrid this year, um, so they're allowing in-person attendees and free access to all the talks though on DEFCON's YouTube channel. So I'll say if you're listening, like it is free. By the time you're listening to this, all the videos will be up. Go check out DEFCON's YouTube channel. There's, I'm sure, plenty of really good talks, especially some of the ones we're about to chat about here. They should go check out and see the research. I'd even say, by the way, besides the YouTube channel, just remember media.defcon.com. They publish all the actual videos, presentations, and everything there. So if you go to media.defcon.com and just go to 29, there'll be, a, I think they call it slides and videos folder. Uh, if you actually want to download them and not just stream them on YouTube. Before you get lost, it's media.defcon.org. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Good point. Uh, but yeah, they've got, I think, every single talk from every single DEFCON on there. Um, yeah, for and usually the presentation slides in PDF, at least format, uh, sometimes music, sometimes the puzzle challenge. I mean, they they have lots of fun folders to play with. There's even a torrent where you can grab the whole... 29 defcon packet yeah, so go check it out but i figured we should maybe sit down and point out a few that we're potentially looking forward to watching over the weekend like i know for start like they're basically effectively their keynote this year it's called between two servers uh, a play on between two ferns um and it's going to be a q a session between dark tangent so jeff moss the creator of defcon uh, and the department of homeland security secretary alejandro mayorkas uh Typically, like these style of talks between like, I guess, just with a political figure, they're always super interesting or super cringy. Usually if they're elected, they're really cringy. But if they're not, they're pretty dang interesting. Um, and I feel like this one with Dark Tangents, um, basically endorsement on it and participation should be yeah, really interesting. It could be also drama. I, I think DEF CON's getting a little kinder and re more respectful, but, but typically uh, Jeff Moss, Dark Tangent, and, and DEFCON folks don't pull punches. You know, we're a bunch of cynical bunch. We don't necessarily take the government at their, their first word on things. We certainly fight them on backdooring encryption and stuff. So usually talks like this are pretty interesting because you kind of get that devil's advocate. You know, it's not softball questions typically. So it should be interesting to see how it goes. That said, I will say that as we're getting, it's nice to have the government there. We want to be respectful and we have gotten a little respectful I feel like DEF CON's get, gotten a little more polite over the years. I feel like so, yeah, as well. It's definitely, it seems like it's grown up a bit from the days where you first attended in Alexis Park to now where it's taking over all of Caesars, or is it? It's back at Paris and Valleys, isn't it? I didn't even pay attention this year because I was sad that we aren't there, but say lovey. But yeah, it's definitely grown up, and there's a lot of benefit to that, by the way. There's good of that, too, but sometimes I missed a little snot-nosed hacker's stirring up drama snot-nosed hackers that's that's what i was back in the alexis park days anyways yep uh did you see anything that like caught your eye Corey? oh gosh there's so many every time you try to get us to pick one uh i guess my first business response you know there's a bunch that i would recommend from uh people that are are you know professional security professionals and watch guard customers i, I noticed that there's a talk called proxy login just the tip of the iceberg 
And I think we both agree that those four vulnerabilities in Exchange were some pretty big deal vulnerabilities. Uh, so hearing of this new attack surface, anyone calling proxy login just the start, it should be interesting to see that. So that was one thing that, again, th that's the more business perspective. The, the same business perspective one is ransomware's big year from nuisance to scourge. Uh, God, I'm sick of talking about ransomware, but with, you know, Kaseya, MSP targeted attacks, the oil, you know, so it's colonial pipeline, JBS meat packing, whatever, it's obviously it's a big year for ransomware. So I, I'm sure business folks would be interested in those too. I will say if I get just personally geeky and go the total opposite personal interest that probably has nothing to do with anyone's business cybersecurity, I kind of liked MavSH attacking from above. Uh, it, some people might know from listening to the podcast, I'm a big time drone hobbyist. Uh, besides starting with kind of aerial photography drones, I'm into racing and freestyle acrobatic drones now, all flown first person. And unfortunately, my country is getting a lot of new regulations, including this this forced remote identification where every drone to even a hobbyist, if it's over 250 grams, you have to have this device beaconing out to identify your drone. And it also actually shares GPS data and speed data with uh, you know the authorities that can connect to it. It's called Mavlink. So there's a talk talking about, you know, uh, the Mavlink po protocol and research into it and, and taking advantage of that loophole to maybe uh, to mess with or hide from <laughs> some of the new regulations coming out. Not that that's good or bad, but I find it interesting because I'm a drone nerd and I am a little irritated by the amount of regulations on a little hobbyist just trying to have fun. No plane has come down, no attack has happened because of FPV drone flying. Not yet, at least. And I feel like they're trying to spearhead it, but you're right. Like, I don't know. They've been out for 10 years. It could happen. Yes, it could. <laughs> and still, despite all the disgusting folks in the world, it hasn't happened yet. Why are you spending so much money ruining my hobby? My 249-gram drone that I have, that it seems like a lot of manufacturers are specifically designing a maybe one gram underneath yeah. the... Uh, requirements i have a few myself i think the mavic uh mini is specifically right under but i have some high-end racing little racing one three inch ones that still do hd video go fast do crazy crap but are under the limit anyways it's always interesting seeing when they're they're doing security auditing and research into my my little personal hobbies too yeah and like i guess speaking of non-business ones when i'm also looking forward to is there's another ATM hacking talk this year. Uh, it seems like it's every year or every other year there's an ATM hacking related talk at DEF CON. It's a pretty popular target ever since like 2010, I think was like the first real one where they, didn't they bring an ATM out on stage too and get it to spit out a bunch of cash? Yep. Jackpot, jackpotting and that was Barnaby Jack, I believe. Yep. Um, so this year, uh, the the person talking is going to be discussing about how they became a licensed ATM operator. Uh, so this guy is a researcher for, I think Zoom is actually the company he works for, but he went through the process of becoming a licensed ATM operator so they could do vulnerability analysis on these ATM machines. And he actually found quite a few that are still unpatched. So 
I don't know. I always like flaws that could potentially make me rich, and so I'm looking forward to seeing this one. <laughs> Not that I would ever exploit one of these, but you know, it's still interesting. Yeah, fun to see. Yeah. yeah. But either way, all of these you guys can probably watch. So check out the their YouTube channel. Go to the media.defcon.org. And uh, if you could go back in time and you're actually listening to us the week we're broadcasting this, you know, you can be following their Twitch and their everything's being done through Discord this year. So I bet you the Discord will still be hopping a little next week, even when it's over. Yep. And then also our Capture the Flag contest is currently running too. And even month the prizes have already basically been claimed by some folks that went really hard in the first day. Uh, we're going to leave the challenges up for at least quite a few more weeks design them in a way where they're pretty low cost to us to pick them up so go check it out we had some pretty fun challenges this year for our capture the flag contest uh, again it's crimsonthorn.net to go check it out um pretty interesting ones that we came up with this year i'm very happy with how it turned out and we still have our last three years now worth of challenges in the archive too so something yeah. like 300 or 400 or Pretty close to 300, I think, challenges. That you can and, and and it will give you a head start. And if you haven't done it before, you'll get the idea of how it works. And then if you join us at Black Hat DEFCON 30 next year, uh, we had badges all ready to go. We have some really cool hardware badges that go with that CTF. We were itching to use them this year. Thank you, COVID. Uh, but uh, they're all ready to go next year. So it should be a pretty cool one if you can join us next year. Yep. So with that, I guess it's time to sign off and I'm going to go start watching some DEF CON videos, I think. <laughs> hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at X-O-R-R-O underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443podcast. Thanks again for listening and you will hear from us next week.